After the banishment of Queen Vashti, Xerxes' attendants stepped in to find a new queen. A plan was set in motion to bring in every beautiful young virgin to the palace for the king to choose from. Eunuchs were dispatched to all corners of the kingdom to prepare these young women for the king's review. Through the darkness of this parade of hedonism, chauvinism, and abuse, stepped a woman who would change the course of history. Esther was the adopted daughter of a Jewish man named Mordecai, who lived in the palace complex of Susa. Mordecai's ancestors had been taken from Jerusalem and carried off into exile and held captive with King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. During the search for the king's wife, the eunuchs were taking the women of the kingdom through a grueling process of beautification, from the made-up appearance of their God-given faces to the treatment of their hair and skin. Each was embellished and adorned to fit the standard of beauty in 5th century Persia. It was into this process of human ornamentation that Esther entered the king's palace. Once there, she caught the eye of Haggai. In his mind, she was a magnificent candidate, and he got right to work on special preparations to qualify Esther for review by Xerxes. Haggai knew Esther was special, so he assigned her seven personal maids to take care of her every need. These weren't just any maids either. These were the best and most experienced straight from the king's palace. It's worth noting here that Esther, caught somewhere between fear and wisdom, never mentioned her Jewish background. Her uncle Mordecai had cautioned her to keep this a secret, so she remained silent on her true lineage. Each girl's turn to meet the king only came after they had completed the 12 months of their prescribed beauty treatment. When it was Esther's turn to meet the king, he instantly fell in love with her. Far more than with any of the other women, he was totally smitten by her. Esther, just as she was, was more than enough for the king. He proudly placed the royal crown on top of her head and made her the new queen in place of Vashti. Filled with excitement, the king then gave a grand banquet for all of his nobles and officials and called it Esther's Banquet. Showtime, five minutes. He proclaimed it a holiday for all of the provinces and handed out gifts with royal generosity. Amidst everything, Esther had still kept her Jewish lineage a secret, just as Mordecai had advised. Everything was going well until one day when Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, he overheard the two men who guarded the entrance of the palace talking to one another. It was obvious by their discussion that they did not like the king. Mordecai could hear everything they were saying, including their plans to kill the king. Mordecai quickly told Queen Esther everything that he had heard, who then told King Xerxes, giving credit to Mordecai. When it was investigated and confirmed as true, the two traitors were immediately killed. Thank you. With Mordecai in the king's good graces, it appeared as though Esther's life and legacy might soon be smooth sailing from here on out. So uh, in preparation for today, I I wore my T-shirt because me and that narrator, man, we're just like brothers, right? And so, uh, yep. And uh, 
Hey, I want to tell you a quick story as we welcome the other campuses and venues uh, that might prepare us for what we're going to do over the next 40 minutes as we continue in the story of Esther. Uh, before the service, a gentleman came up to me. He's been here for a couple of years, and he was paying me a compliment, and it was kind of funny how he said it. He said, you know, uh, most time when I go to churches, uh, the pastor, you know, once in a while will give a good sermon. And he said, but in the two years that I've been here, it seems like every week you give a, a great sermon. And, and I, no, 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 don't, don't clap. I'll tell you why, because this is a message on humility. And so we don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I didn't tell you that to be self-serving. I immediately said to him something that's important for all of us. And I said, well, let me ask you, uh, are you somebody that loves the word of God? Do you love the Bible? And he said, yes. And I said, that's why you feel that every week I give a great sermon, because this is Scottsdale Bible Church, and we, I, stay very close to the Word. We teach the Bible. And here's my point, gang. If you love the Bible, and most of you do, you're going to love what we do today and every week. But conversely, and this might help some of you who find some of the stuff we do around here boring, if you find the Bible boring, then you're going to find me boring. Is that safe to say? It's true. Uh, one of the things that we, the reason I came here 12 years ago to Scottsdale Bible Church is because this is a church that stands apart in many ways in its unashamed vision to teach the Word of God. And the only reason I tell you all that today is because we are going to dive into chapter 2 here, and at least for the first 20 minutes, man, we're going to wrestle with the text. We're going to look very deeply at what it says uh, about Xerxes and Ahasuerus and Esther and Mordecai, and we're going to draw out the meaning of that text, and then in about 20 minutes, we're going to apply it to our, our lives, which we always do. But man, if that first part bores you, I would encourage you to search your soul because this is God's word and none of it is ever boring, at least if our souls are alive to him. So with that said, let's pray and then we'll dive right in. God, I thank you for our times of worship uh, and relationality with you and each other that hopefully have now prepared us to open up our minds and our hearts to what you have already said to us, but that we need to discover in fresh ways. And so, Lord, we're parking in front of this book of Esther that you have so seen, seen to prepare for us throughout the years. And I pray, God, that as we Turn the page to chapter two today, that God, you might help us to understand rightly what you have written for us, and that Lord, our commitment back will be to apply this diligently to our lives. So work in us now on this all-important topic of humility, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here's something that most of you do not know about me, and it's true. I once got hooked on a soap opera, and I couldn't stop watching it's true. I was young. I was naive. I was a freshman in college when we all do stupid things. And I'd never watched a soap opera up to that point in my life at all. My father always told me to stay away from them and to just say no. But one day, I was innocently walking through the commons area of the freshman dorm where I was living. And there were a bunch of guys, 10 men, huddled around this TV. And as I watched them, I heard, Luke yelling at Laura, and then Scotty walked in and started yelling at Luke, and then Laura went to call her adopted father, Rick, and before you know it, I was sitting down to dial into this drama and find out what happened next. 
And I got so hooked, true story, that for the next six months, every day at three, I made sure that I was, I was back in that seat to watch the next installment of General Hospital. About six months later, my fraternity uh, confronted me and got me into a support group for my addiction. And I've been clean for 35 years now, but I, I do know the lure of soap operas. So why do I tell you that cute little story? Here's why. And many of us need to dial into this. The Bible at times reads like a modern day soap opera. It does especially in the Old Testament, if you've ever read it, where some parts of the drama are so thick, where the relationships are so goofy and mucked up with sin that you wonder if you're reading the Bible or watching the latest episode of As Israel Turns. And when you read the book of Esther, the book that we're looking at this fall here at SBC, it's gonna read at times like a soap opera. In fact, it's kind of a cross between a a soap opera and an action flick. So let's review the plot line up to this point. The Israelites, as we all know, have been in exile from the Holy Land for four generations now, banished to far off places in Persia, which as we have noted, encompasses the entire modern day Middle East. And then, as we've also noted, the king, whose name is Ahasuerus or Xerxes, depending on your translation you read, is the secular king of Persia. And in chapter one, he decides to throw a party for the Persian elite that lasts six months. I mean, it's just a hedonistic party. And at the end of this, he throws a party for all of Susa, the capital. And after drinking a bit too much wine, he gets the idea to summon his wife, Queen Vashti, to appear before all the visitors so that they can gawk at her beauty. And thankfully, she wants none of this. And yet this ticks off the king, and so you got to love the drama. He asks his seven most trusted advisors what to do. And the smartest guy among them, a guy by the name of Memucan, tells him that if he does nothing, then all the women in the kingdom will likewise start disobeying their husbands, and you can't have that. So he tells Ahasuerus to banish Vashti from ever being in his sight again. And Ahasuerus does this, and then he sends an official royal edict, a law throughout all of Persia telling women to obey their husbands, which I'm sure the women receive very well. But now Ahasuerus is without a queen. And so he goes on a hunt through the entire kingdom and gets a few hundred of the most beautiful women, puts them through an entire year of an extreme makeover and plans on spending time with each one of them and out of this group choose a new queen. And it's at this point that Esther enters into the story. A beautiful Jewish woman, one of the exiles, who's been under the care of her older cousin Mordecai and through a strange turn of events, out of all the women that Ahasuerus could have chosen, he chooses Esther to be his queen. So one day, Esther is this poor, struggling exile in a strange land, and now she is the queen to the king of the largest known land at that time. Nobody knew anything beyond the borders of Persia, and as we've seen, this guy is rather insecure, angry, self-absorbed, and hedonistic. 
I'm telling you, this reads like as Persia turns. Now, as we turn the page to chapter two of this drama, the question that we need to continually ask and remind ourselves is this. What is God saying to us through this historical account? This is an historical story in the Bible here. It really happened about 480 BC, so 2,500 years ago. And it's recorded in the Bible. It reads more like a secular book. So what is God saying to you and me today? Why did he see fit to put this book in the Bible? And we call this series aptly, God Behind the Scenes. Because though God is never mentioned in this book, and it reads like a secular book, the book of Esther, as we've noted, God is very active in this book. He's just behind the scenes. God is going to orchestrate all the different movements of this story to to be in line with his providence, his care for Israel. And eventually, things are going to get really bad here in a few chapters. He's going to come through and even save Israel. So we've noted for our lives today, and this is really important, that there are times where we feel like spiritual exiles. There's times where you and I feel far away from God. We call it divine distance, where God seems to be very much in the background and not very active in our lives, just like the book of Esther. But that the key for us during those times is to trust in the providence of God. To trust that he is still with you. He says he's never going to forsake you or leave you. You're just not feeling it right now. But that he is in control. He is providential. And we need to trust in him. That's the main point of the book of Esther. Now, from this point on in our journey through this book, here's what we're going to note. And this is really amazing. And that is that we're going to note that each chapter is now going to give us one thing to do. We're going to notice that each chapter gives us one thing that relates to our divine distance, to this idea of trusting in the providence of God, that if we dare do these things, will only enhance our ability to navigate divine distance and tap more fully into God's providence. And so here is what chapter two of Esther reveals to us. It's a character trait that many Christians struggle with, let alone many people, yet it's core to navigating times when God feels far away and it will only enhance your trust in his providence and it's the character trait of humility. And so we're gonna say it like this. It's your main and only point today. But man, you gotta dial into this gang. And that is that providence smiles on humility and frowns on pride. This is gonna be the main message we get out of chapter two. God's providence, the fact that he is with you and in control, smiles on you when you are humble and conversely kind of frowns on you and me when we are proud. Now, how do we know that this is true? When you look closely at chapter two, the story told to you earlier, and we're gonna now go more deeply into it in our look at chapter two, one of the things that you can't help but notice amidst all the drama is this huge contrast between the opening scene of pride and then the subsequent scenes of humility. In other words, there's a battle going on in chapter two kind of like the battle in your own soul between pride 
and humility. Let me show you what I mean. Notice how the chapter begins with the author spending a few verses chronicling the king's utter pride. It says in the first four verses of chapter two this. It says, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti, the queen, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather together every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now, when you read those first opening verses there, you're tempted to think, well, it's just describing the scene here and what the king is doing and kind of the next movement in this story. And it is. But what I need you to notice here, give me another click here, is the progression of pride going on as Ahasuerus does his thing. You will notice that it first begins by describing his anger. It says, as his anger from chapter one, when he was dissed by his wife Vashti, subsides. Here's the deal. Many times, anger is not about pride. You're just angry. But you and I both know that there's times where anger is about pride. You have been shunned. Your pride has been wounded. Somebody's gotten in your way when you're trying to do selfish things. And there's a pride in all of us that, that when that happens, gets very angry and lashes out at those around us. I would submit to you that that's exactly the kind of anger that Ahasuerus is experiencing now. It's an anger associated with pride. And then it goes on to describe, and again, I'm glad we don't have days like this now, but it goes on to describe his harem, his group of women, that as we saw last week, he, he objectifies, objectifies and takes pleasure in, hedonistic pleasure himself. Again, it's all about him and his wants, his desires, as he objectifies women, this harem. And he's adding to this harem because he goes out and gets all these young virgins in the, town, in the land of Persia there, most likely against their will. It doesn't say anything about being voluntary. Brings them into the harem and then for a whole year uh, puts them through a beauty treatment of heavy cosmetics. Now, I know Scottsdale wouldn't know anything about cosmetics or beauty treatments, and so maybe I know, I, I, we, you guys know all about that. And so, you know, just picture maybe the, the, the most wonderful boutique in Scottsdale. This doesn't even, that didn't even light a candle to this. A whole year of cosmetics. And then the whole goal of all of this is for the king to find his wife, and twice it says there in verse four that what mattered most is that it would please the king. Here's the point, gang. Last week we noted that there were four driving aspects of Persian culture, secularism, hedonism, objectification of women, and judicial dysfunction. And you're seeing all four of them in spades in this opening chapter, opening verses of chapter two. The secular king here, he is all about pride. He's all about himself, his pleasure, his happiness, putting himself first, no matter what the cost to other people, it's pride through and through. Now, 
Hang on to that and notice with me by contrast what the rest of the chapter does. Because what the rest of the chapter does is give us three clear expressions of humility that contrast this opening scene of pride. The first one occurs in verse 7 after Mordecai, this fourth generation exiled Jew, is introduced. And look at what it says in verse 7. This is fascinating. It says, and he, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, that would make her his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So you have this extended family of fourth generation exiles from Israel, away from their homeland, losing all of their housing, poor and struggling to survive. And for unknown reasons, the father and mother die in one family. So the older cousin of another family, or of the same family, adopts the younger cousin whose parents died. Interesting. I have read the Old Testament as many of you have had. I have read all the 490 laws that governed Israel in the Old Testament. And it's interesting, there is not one of them that commands the adoption of a younger cousin by an older cousin. So for motives that we must assume were purely about protecting his younger cousin and providing for her and nurturing her, Mordecai, not thinking of himself, takes her in, looks after her in a culture that was hard enough to look after yourself. Ahasuerus is never known, the king, for taking on a needy family member, but Mordecai is. It's humility. Then look at verses 10 through 12, and you'll notice a second expression of humility, this time concerning Esther, when it says this, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she had fared. So, continuing to look after Esther, now that she is in the palace as one of Ahasuerus' harem of potential queens, Mordecai checks on her every day, but then interesting, and this is really important, he gives her advice, he gives her even unwanted counsel, and she follows it. And what's fascinating about this, I told you this chapter is all about a big contrast between the pride of the king and then the humility of Esther and Mordecai. The king, if you remember from chapter one, had also been given advice, right? In other words, he had been given advice from his seven most trusted advisors. I told you that earlier. And yet it was advice that they knew that he wanted to hear. It was advice that he wanted to hear. It wasn't good advice, get rid of this queen who, who you're objectifying. And, and it was advice that caused him to make a bonehead and silly decision, getting rid of the queen. And yet Esther here is given advice that she did not ask for by Mordecai and she humbly listens to that advice. And as we're gonna see, this idea of hiding her Jewish identity in the early days here was good advice and is gonna pay off in the end. You see, here's what the Proverbs would go on to say. It says, in, or I'm sorry, the Proverbs said even before this book was written, Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. 
And Esther listened because she was humble and teachable. The king only heard what he wanted to hear. It's a clear contrast. Now, I can tell, and I tried to warn you guys about this, by the glazed look that some of you are getting, that you're, you're getting, you know, you're trying hard to stay with me in this. Just stay with me. We're going to accelerate here in just a minute. Cactus, venue, chapel, Northridge, we're going to accelerate. But before we do that, look at a third expression of pride, and then we'll put all this together. I'm sorry, third expression of, of humility. And it occurs in verse 15, and it says this. Now, when the turn of Esther came to go into the king, here it is, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. It's fascinating. Commentators and Bible experts wrestle with why Esther didn't request anything. Maybe she was so beautiful she didn't think she needed it. I think it's more than that. I think that the reason that Esther did not request anything but the bare minimum of all these cosmetics, watch this, is that she was comfortable in her own skin. We're going to define humility in a minute as a right or godly estimation of yourself. It's understanding yourself as God has described you. That's humility. And God describes you as his creation, wonderfully made, loved by him, fallen and in need of redemption. Those are the things God says. And Esther knew this. She knew that she was okay as she was, that she didn't need all these cosmetics, and it shows the humility in her soul. And did you notice that then, as a result of that humility, she found favor in the eyes of everyone? That's going to be important for us as we put this together in just a minute. So, add it all up. You got a Hashuerus, the king, full of pride, which is all about asserting the self and hearing what it wants to hear. And then in contrast to this, you got no less than three expressions of humility that are all about respecting others, listening to wise counsel, being comfortable with who you are as a creation of God. And so without ever defining the terms before us, pride and humility, Esther too goes way beyond that and simply shows us what they look like in real life through characters that we can identify with. It's an amazing chapter, this idea of pride versus humility. And, and it screams to you and me to make a choice for our own lives. Now, why is all of this important? Other than just recording history, why this utter contrast between pride and humility? And what does this mean for you and me today? Well, we got just about 15 minutes left before we go to our elder fund offering. And in the 15 minutes we have left, I want to share with you a couple of very practical outpourings from this chapter that teach us about pride versus humility. Uh, practical outpourings that I think are very important for you and me today. And here's the first thing that we know about pride and humility, and this chapter underlines it, and that is that pride alienates while humility builds bridges. And that's important to recognize. Pride alienates while humility builds bridges. And some of you are going, man, I already know that. Like, teach me something I don't already know. Here's the problem, is that our world doesn't quite get that yet. Have you ever noticed that? 
whether it comes to sports or business or academia. I mean, they literally almost tell you, just believe strongly in yourself and think more highly of yourself than you ought. Assert yourself because that's how you're going to get somewhere in this world and culture of ours. They don't teach you that pride actually alienates your spouse, that it repels your children, and that your friends don't actually like that aspect of you. And then humility. Have you ever noticed how our world responds to humility? I mean, they don't diss humility, but if you ever display humility, the world basically does this. They pat you on the head and go, by. that's kind of quaint. That's kind of nice. You must be a Christian or something like that. You see, God turns that thing upside down. And God says, no, no, you don't get it. Pride always alienates. And humility will always build bridges. I I mean, when you look closely at this story, and particularly this chapter, it's exactly what you see. Ahasuerus alienates his wife due to pride. He's now in chapter 2, lonely and angry. Two results of pride. And now he has to engage in a major power play in order to find a wife. And you could write that story a thousand times over today. While Esther, this humble, non-assuming, comfortable in her own skin Jewish girl, did you catch this? Finds favor with literally everyone. Her cousin Mordecai, the king's officials, and even eventually the king himself. It's really clear, gang, pride alienates and humility builds bridges. Uh, When I was growing up, I I grew up in a small town in the Midwest, as most of you know, and uh, I grew up in a time where we didn't have video games. uh, We didn't have much TV, just three channels. And uh, we didn't have parents that really wanted to spend a ton of time with us. Remember those days? So, you know, I'd be hanging out at home, bored stiff, and my mom and dad would say, would you please go outside, leave, and find something to do? And so that was my upbringing back in the Midwest in the uh, 1960s and 70s. And as a result of that, growing up in a small town and and that kind of environment, uh, I spent a lot of time outside as a kid, and, and I loved to catch animals. Not, not to harm them at all. I, I had aquariums filled with snakes and I had, uh, you know, all sorts of salamanders and I'd go fishing in the river and, and I just, again, I grew up around a more natural environment and I, and I loved that about my upbringing. And at one point I also had an aquarium and, and, and aquariums are an amazing thing. I had a saltwater one as well as a freshwater one growing up and, and aquariums are wonderful because you can just see the beauty and the complexity of such a simple animal, seemingly fish. One of the things I learned early on about aquariums is that the the most popular freshwater fish for an aquarium are are what we call angelfish. Angelfish you'll find in all sorts of aquariums for the simple reason that they're probably one of the most beautiful and diverse fish. They come in all different shapes and sizes, all different colors. It's just an amazing breed of fish. They, They get along well with other fishes, generally speaking. They can be somewhat territorial, but they tend to work well with other fish in the aquarium. And and, and so as a result of this, they're actually one of the most common fish that you will find uh, in in, in aquariums even still today. Angelfish. And they're aptly named because they're docile, wonderful, if you will, humble fish. 
The opposite of an angelfish is a fish you'll never find in any aquarium, and that is a puffer fish or a blowfish. You won't find those in most aquariums for the simple reason that they're not nice fish at all. Uh, they're used to being picked on. Obviously, this is a bloated version of it. They're a much smaller fish. What they do when they get threatened is fill their bellies with water and air, and they puff up, and they got all these spines. But what most people don't know about puffer fish is that they're also filled, most of them, with a very toxic substance that makes it bad eating and their enemies kind of stay away from them. And it's potentially deadly to any other fish and extremely toxic to humans. In fact, the toxin in pufferfish, according to National Geographic's website, is 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. And in just one pufferfish, there is enough toxin to kill 30 adult humans. And as of 2017, there's no known antidote, at least according to this website. So you don't see many of these fish in aquarium, a puffer fish. You'll see a lot of angel fish. Now, now why do I tell you this story? Uh, let's take this analogy further. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 in the King James is a beautiful phrase. It says this, knowledge puffeth up. Knowledge puffeth up. In other words, this image of puffing up in the Bible is really akin to pride. That when you get too much into knowledge, too much into yourself, too much into, you know, believing your own press releases, that you sort of puff up just like a puffer fish. And just like a puffer fish is not really friends with any other fish because no one wants to be around it, it's pretty clear from the Bible's standpoint that when you puff yourself up, there's enough toxin in you that most people are going to want to avoid you. And yet, conversely... Interesting that the Bible mentions angels. This idea of angel fish is, by contrast, exactly what will attract people to you. When you show the beautiful side of who you are, the humble side of who you are, the graceful, docile, I can work with others side of who you are. And if you want to know whether or not you are truly an angel fish or a, a blowfish or a puffer fish, here's the deal. You can't make that decision yourself. The only barometer for what kind of fish you are are those around you. In other words, you have to ask those around you or just look closely at whether you are drawing them close to you in intimate relationship or if you are somehow repelling them. I've told you guys this a thousand times. I tend to be, uh, you know, kind of bold from the pulpit. But honestly, if you ever come to me one-on-one, -on -one, I, I think I'm relatively uh, more mild. And there's times where I'm talking to somebody and they're telling me their tale of woe and their problems. And I think something that I don't say. Maybe I should say it, but I'll say it now. So if this fits you in a conversation we had... Here it is. And, and that is that somebody will be telling me their tale of woe. You're going to love this. Tell me their tale of woe. And, and they'll say, you know, and, and I had this marriage and it went south. And, and now I'm as alienated from my wife and, and the kids. They don't want anything to do with me. And, you know, I had this job and I got fired and it's not going well. And my friends, they're not around anymore. And, and, and I want to say at that moment, do you think the problem just might be you? Because you're blaming your wife, you're blaming your kids, you're blaming your boss, you're blaming your friends. When are you going to stop thinking that it's everybody else? When are you going to start thinking, maybe there's a part of me that's a puffer fish. 
Maybe there's a part of me that's just puffing myself up and the second anyone gets close to me, they go, I don't wanna be around that fish. You see, we have to be honest with ourselves. If you find yourself alienating other people, here's the point. Pride alienates. Humility and brokenness, having this right estimation of who you are as a fallen but beloved sinner in the sight of God, as Esther had, that's going to attract people to you. And the reason that this is so leads us to the second practical observation I need to make about pride versus humility. And this one is worth the price of admission today, which by the way was free. And here it is. And that is that pride and humility are two types of fuel for the soul. You see, this is why this is such an important uh, conversation Pride and humility are not these kind of tangential issues that we might or might not deal with. Man, I'm telling you, these are core to how you are motivated and how you respond and even the fuel you run on each week of your life. You see, pride and humility are two types of internal energy that your thoughts and emotions respond to and run on. They, they, they motivate you in one direction or another. So kind of like a car that needs gas, but you can either put good gas in it or bad gas. You can put either one in the car and it'll probably run, but how it runs will determine on whether you got good gas. And what God says is that humility is the good fuel that he wants our souls to run on and pride is not. And again, how it works with those around you and even with God is profound and powerful. I want to wrap up by telling you a, a true story, kind of a vulnerable story for me, but I, I look back on it now with fondness and I, and I smile. And it wasn't a story that I told the, uh, the, the, the team that hired me 12 years ago, and you'll hear why. But let, let me just ask a question. Have any of you, through a hand raise, ever been fired from a job before? Raise your hand if you've ever been fired from a job before. Yeah, most of you are liars. So a lot of us have probably been fired <laughs> from a job before. And uh, I've only been fired once. And again, I did not put it on my resume. But I, I got fired back in 1988. It was actually the winter of 88. And I want to tell you the story. I was in my second year of seminary, and uh, I, I had come out of college, just fired up for Jesus, went on to seminary. And as I told you guys before, I, I struggled a lot in seminary. God was chipping away at my character. I had a lot of issues with my father. I was a young man, very insecure, and I had anxiety that I was wrestling with and depression. And, and, and a lot of it was just centered on the fact that I cared so deeply what everybody thought of me. I, I mean, I was so codependent with the world around me. And so I got hired uh, in seminary for 15 hours a week to work with this youth organization called Youth for Christ, which is the young life of the Midwest. And, and so I was like, all excited to work with this youth organization. And yet what I found they wanted me to do in relatively short order was to go on to, to secular high school campuses and to befriend these lost kids and then try to bring them to the Youth for Christ events. When I found out that that's what they wanted me to do, again, put two and two together, this guy who's terrified of rejection, caring what other people think, I thought, man, I'd rather like poke needles in my eyes than do something like that. 
And so I spent a lot of time in the office and I hung around a lot of youth pastors and they didn't want us hanging around youth pastors. They wanted us on, on campuses. But I kind of muddled around for three or four months and I didn't tell my bosses at Youth for Christ why this was so. I just sort of struggled with doing my actual job. About four months into it, the head of Youth for Christ for all of uh, Chicago, I mean, just a wonderful, wonderful guy named Clayton, but he was the big man, uh, asked me out for lunch. <laughs> and, and I didn't have any idea why he was asking me out. I should have, but we went out to lunch, and, and he essentially said to me this. He said, Jamie, I got a proposition for you. He said, um, it's obvious that you have a lot of issues. And I thought, well, you got no argument for me there. And he said, and, and I think we can help you with your issues, I think we can help grow you and mature you and start to work on some of these things. But with 15 hours a week, we can't. And so if you're willing to put seminary on pause and come on staff full-time with Youth for Christ, I think we can work with you. And if you're not, this will be your last day with Youth for Christ. I thought, oh my gosh, I, I, I wasn't seeing that coming. I should have. And so I, I didn't really have to think about it very long because seminary was very important to me. Uh, my mentors had drilled into me. I needed theological education. And so, and my dad, by the way, was paying for it and graciously. And so I said to Clayton, I said, oh man, I said, I, I, I can't leave seminary. I'm getting married in six months. I'm going to be looking to do church work. And I said, I, I, I just can't leave seminary. He said, I understand. He said, consider yourself released as of today. I felt a lot of shame in that moment. I felt more like a failure than I usually did back then. And, and, and then everything changed with what he said next. Because what he said next was one of the most humble, life-giving statements that made this firing one of the best things that ever happened to me. And, and he meant it as more of kind of a, just a benign, encouraging statement. He looked at me as he, I can still picture him chewing his food. He was that relaxed about it. And he simply said this. He said, here's the deal, Jamie. He said, though you're leaving Youth for Christ right now, he said, I believe you are going to grow. I believe you are going to work through your issues. I believe that God's got his hand on you. And he said, and I think that God's going to use you in huge ways for his kingdom in future years. And he said, and all I know is that when I hear about that someday, I'm going to say to the person next to me, I had a hand in that guy's life. And he said, you're fired. <laughs> I, I walked away from that time thinking, okay, I, I, I got fired, but you know what? This was life-giving because he encouraged me greatly. As many of you know, I finished seminary. I went on to my first church where for nine years I was lovingly mentored in all my insecurities. I got counseling, all the things I needed to do to start to work through my issues. And though my wife would be the first one to say I still got issues, they're not as bad as they were back 35 years ago. And uh, that was a very life-giving thing Clayton did. Here's what I thought about over the years, and this is relevant to you. I wonder how it would have been different if Clayton wasn't one of those humble bosses who knew how to let you go, even in a life-giving way. Some of you hearing me talk right now are going, man, I wish I got fired like that. Because when I got fired, I wasn't like that at all. I mean, the reality is, is that many people lose their jobs in harsh ways, ways filled with pride, ways that don't care about you as an individual at all. And, and it hurts, it wounds for years on end. And I understand that. And I'm thankful that the one time I got fired, I got fired by a really humble guy who cared more about me than even himself. And you see, pride works that way. It's a fuel that we carry around with us 
that oozes out each moment of each day to those around us. And humility is the same thing. It's a fuel we carry around with us that oozes out. One of them alienates. Another one tends to draw people close. And here's my last thought, and with this we're done. And this you have to understand. And that is not only does it work this way with people, it works the exact same way with God. Some of you wonder why I said earlier that providence smiles on humility and frowns on pride. Here's why. Can you guys bring up that James passage? I I skipped it earlier. James 4 verses 6 and 7 make it really clear. It says, he, God, gives more grace. In other words, he always wants to give you grace. This is why the scriptures say he opposes the proud but shows favor or grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. See, here's the deal. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. And because he loves you, he wants you to trust him and submit to him each moment of each day, even as we're seeing in the series when he feels very far away. That's when you need to trust him the most and in his providence. And this character trait of humility is your friend because humility, humbling yourself before God and others causes God to smile upon you. He loves that in you. And it's gonna help you navigate those times of distance and he will draw closer to you. Conversely, pride, which is so easy to fall into, tends to repel even God. He doesn't want that in you and it creates distance. So now you see why this first trait that we're looking at in this series is so important for navigating divine distance. It will help you trust God even when he feels far away and it will eventually bring you closer to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are in our lives. Thank you for this wonderful chapter in the Bible that contrasts this idea of pride versus humility. And God, I pray that as each of us kind of give thought to our own lives, audit to our own experiences here, uh, when it comes to our own battle with pride and humility, that God, we drop the pride and that we'd have this right estimation of ourselves. May we be more about Esther and Mordecai than the king. And Father, I pray that as we do that, that God, that distance that we at times, maybe even at lengthy times, feel from you, uh, God, would start to, to get closer. And that God, we'd start to feel your smile upon us as we submit ourselves even to you. And that's my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.